I am Pastor Carlos, and I'm always delighted to be before you, and I always find it an honor and a privilege to stand up here. I take this seriously, and I just am privileged to do this. As Larry had mentioned, we have started in our series in Genesis, and to me, the entire series of Genesis has been telling the story, because we all have a story. He started by talking about the story of creation, and then he talked about the story of Adam and Eve, and we've also even had our elders tell their story, their journey with God, how they came to know Christ. And you're going to hear a little later one of our students give their testimony and tell their story. But this morning, I get to tell you the story of Noah and the ark. And I know that all of you have heard, you guys have all heard the story of Noah and the ark, right? I think all of you have because everyone and their mom in this entire world knows the story of Noah and the ark. Even people who are strongly opposed to Christianity know the story of Noah and the ark. It is probably the best known story in the Old Testament. You don't find depictions of David and Goliath or Daniel and the Dian's land in bookstores or any stores, but you will always find Noah or his boat. And have you guys ever noticed that people are always looking for that silly boat? Like if it was a Titanic, but even if they found the ark in perfect condition tomorrow, the skeptics would still disbelieve. And even if they never find that the people, the faithful like you would still believe What's interesting about this is that even if they were to find it, they say that this boat was built out of wood, and it has been exposed to the elements for over 5,000 years now. So if they find it, the miracle wouldn't be so much the story of Noah and the ark. The miracle would be how they found this boat in perfect condition after five millenniums. And if they do find this boat, I want some of that wood. You see, my patio dry rotted after five years. <laughs> so I would be looking for some of this wood as well. The story goes back to Genesis chapter 6. God had decided to destroy the world because of his unrighteousness and the evil that had become so rampant. And there was Noah standing face to faith. So let's start at verse 9 out of chapter uh, uh, 6. And we're going to read all the way to 22. It's a long story, so bear with me. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. The only blameless person living on the earth at that time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So next boy is going to be called Ham. If you guys ever have a boy here, I suggest Ham. That's a pretty cool name. Anyway, now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all of this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar, inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat. Lower, middle, and upper. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. And then skip over to 21 and it says, Be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all the animals. And then it says, so Noah did exactly as God had commanded him. 
And I don't know about you, because we've heard this story a million times, but have you guys ever really given any thought to building a large, in this case, a very large boat in the middle of a country that had no major body of water and that had never seen rain? They didn't even know what rain was. It had to have been either an act of insanity, which is why I called Noah crazy, or it had to have been an incredible act of faith. Well, the Bible clues us in as to what it was, because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says that it was by faith that Noah built the large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. And I wonder after reading this, if any of us here this morning would be able to join Noah in making the faith hall of fame. After all, if you read chapter 11 out of Hebrews, it is the faith chapter. You find a bunch of ordinary men that did extraordinary things through the power of God. They were sure of what they hoped for and certain of what they did not see. In scripture, we read that this thing was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high with three separate decks. To put it into perspective for you, that is the size of a football field and a half. And different folks have tried to capture what this would look like, but somehow they all end up looking like this picture. You see, a vessel this size did not exist outside of the book of Genesis until 1884 when the ocean liner Arturia was launched in Liverpool, England. Experts tell us that the rectangular dimensions of the ark is indicative of an advanced design in shipbuilding. The fact that it was six times longer than it was wide and only 45 feet high would have made it incredibly stable on the ocean and it had, would have made it virtually impossible to overturn. It kind of goes back to some of those comments that I've heard in the past that the Titanic was built by professionals, but the ark was built by an amateur. So if God didn't design it, then who did? It keeps telling us that if you put it into perspective that the total interior deck space of Noah's Ark would have been over 100,000 square feet. Compare that to a standard livestock car rail, which is about 350 square feet and will hold about 200 pigs or 120 sheep. So there would have been an equivalent of about 300 box rail cars, which would have been a train that is almost four and a half kilometers long and would hold almost 36,000 sheep-sized animals. That's how large this thing was. Then the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is, what would motivate a guy to build an ark when people didn't even, didn't even know what an ark was? They didn't even know what rain was. The evidence of the Bible says that it took 100 to 120 years to build. I mean, what would motivate anyone, any of us, to do a project that's longer than even three years, five years, ten years, let alone 100 to 120? You see, I'm not even motivated to go to the gym for an entire year, let alone 100 years or 120. So it, you, it begs the question is, what would motivate you to do any long project? There had to have been an incredible motivation in Noah's life in order for this to become reality. You see, Noah's life, it is a great example of God-centered motivation. It is the greatest example that I've ever seen or have ever heard of. You see, Noah's is a story of building a boat in the flood, and that's what we focus on. But there are so many stories within the story. We just know, we know that it's a story of faith. 
It is a story of God-centered motivation. It is a story of persevering. And as I studied Noah, I want to give you five different stories that I came up with that I want to give to you so that you can apply into your life that I think would be helpful. The first one is that this is also a story of justice. Sometimes we go right into the story and talk about the flood and wonder why would God ever do something that mean? You see, but in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, begins the story. So we have to go back and understand why this happened in the first place. And the story begins with Cain and Abel. Here's a brand new world, a brand new opportunity, very few people in it. They could go wherever they wanted to. But somehow with two brothers, the first murder occurs. What do you guys think that did to God's heart? He's just seen what happened in the Garden of Eden, and now he's seen the results of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And it's not like they start with little lies, like the first generation starts out lying, and then the next generation, they, they, you know, they start stealing, and then it becomes pride, and on and on, all the way until it becomes murder. No, it's right off the bat. The first family, the first thing, there's a murder, so it starts to break God's heart. This is his creation. He just created the world in seven days, and all of a sudden, he sees his creation just killing each other. Also in Genesis 4, we hear the story about a man named Lamech who married two women. And this is another sin. God has said to, he had said one man, one woman for life. He told Adam that. And not only does Lamech do that, but he also commits murder. So the second murder recorded in the book of Genesis happens here. And it starts to build and build and 1600 years pass by, over 1600 years happen. And it builds to the point of Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. We need to look at that verse because that is why the entire flood happened. It says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become. And every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, it says, all the time. Here's an entire world of people whose every thought was evil all the time. This isn't like our world today, today where most of us are trying to do good. And good. God looks down in his great sorrow and sees what is going on in this world. You see, the story could have easily ended in tragedy. But it didn't because on the scene comes one man who makes an incredible difference because of the faith, the purpose, and the plan that God had for his life. So I don't want you to miss that today. I really want you to hear that one person can make a difference in the world because of his or her faith in their God. There's also another interesting note at the end of Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 7, which I read to you before, that tends to put the judgment of God into perspective. Remember, this is a story of justice. It says, by his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. Meaning that it was faith, I mean, that it was Noah who they were measuring up against. And because of his faith, nobody could measure up, and he is the one that condemned the world. To put it into perspective for you, did you guys ever have a teacher in high school or a professor in college that graded on the curve? Anyone? You all have. You know the theory that if the test was a good test and the teacher was a good teacher, then the grades should fall along a bell curve. You'd have so many A's and F's, a few more B's and D's, and the majority would fall in the C range, C being average, and by its very definition, most people are average. That's what average is. And so the curve would end up looking something like this. That's what a bell curve is. And teachers who are dedicated to this bell curve grading would grade on this curve. However, if the test wasn't good, 
and the material wasn't taught well enough, then the entire curve would move down. And what happened is that a professor who was committed to this whole curve thing would have to grade accordingly and move the grades or the marks up. The problem was when the curve moved to the left, like you're about to see, showing that most people scored poorly, and that is that red line showing you that most people just scored really badly. However, what if one or two students still scored high? Thus indicating that the problem wasn't with the test or the teacher, but the students. That is the conclusion that the only conclusion that you could make. So then the professor would be unwilling and unable to move the marks up because he was committed to this curve thing. And we refer to these people as kindly as possible as curve blowers. By the way, I used to love the curve personally, but see, Noah's faith blew the curve. Noah was a curb blower. Had there not been a Noah, then God would have to conclude that either he hadn't taught the course properly or that the test was too hard. But if you go back to Genesis 6, 9, it says that Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at that time, and he walked in close, close fellowship with God. This, folks, is evidence that it could be done. If people really wanted to do it, they could do it as well. And if there are no consequences for disobeying the rules, then they aren't rules at all. They're just mere suggestions. Think about what happened as Noah was building the ark. Noah probably had had to have heard the question, what are you doing, a million times. After all, it took over a hundred years to build this thing. So there had to have been either skeptics or family or whatever it was. Hey, Noah, what are you doing? So he had that opportunity, and the record, I mean, the Bible tells us that there is no record of mass conversions. In fact, it doesn't even give us one conversion, which tells us that these people continued in their evil ways after they had an opportunity to repent. And there, my friends, is another application for us today. It tells us that God is still just. And he still requires obedience. Remember, it was John chapter 4 in the New Testament that says, If you love me, obey my commandments. The promise of God's justice reminds us that in the end, justice will be served. You know, sometimes we stand back and look at the world in history and wonder why God hasn't done something about it if he is a just God like the Bible says. Well, this story reminds us that he will one day. In the end, justice will be served. And as Solomon wrote in Proverbs 21:15, justice is a joy to the godly, but it terrifies the evildoers. In the end, evildoers will have to answer for their evil. You know, over 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson wrote about our beautiful United States of America, these words. He says, I tremble for our country when I reflect that God is just. 200 years down the road, when we look back at what is happening now, we will understand what this guy meant when he said, God will either have to bring judgment on our country or dig up Sodom and Gomorrah and apologize. This is a story of justice. We have to come to terms that we serve a just God in his time. But it's also a story of grace. So first there is justice. God will not be mocked. The evildoers will not escape punishment. And I know that there are a lot of folks out there that are saying, yes, that is exactly what we need, especially after things like Proposition 8 gets overturned and we have this guy in Florida that wasn't found guilty. And we think that is exactly what we need. We need justice. But let's be careful to pray for justice. 
Because it was a Canadian poet by the name of Margaret Atwood who said, never pray for justice because you might just get some. When you cheer the fact that God will judge sinners, remember that Mark Twain also said that heaven goes by favor. Because if it went by merit, we would stay out and our dogs would go in. (laughs) Justice, by its very definition, is getting what we deserve. Mercy is getting less than what we deserve. And grace is getting what we don't deserve at all. And we learned last week when Larry spoke about Adam and Eve's great fall, that grace means the free, unmerited, unexpected love of God and all of its benefits, all of its delights, and all of its comforts that go with it. It means that even though we are sinners, God treats us as his children and his heirs. So even though it's justice that we deserve, listen to what God says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that you have done. So none of us can boast about it. It all begins in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. It is a very important verse in the Bible that says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, it says. The word grace is found there for the first time in the Bible. It is one of the most important words in all of God's words. Here's Noah in the midst of this perverse society who is the one man who can find grace and favor in God's sight. And there are three things that God tells us right away about Noah, and we tend to read and skip over them quickly because we want to get to the good stuff like the size and the flood and all of that stuff. But the most important thing in these verses is who Noah was, his character. That is what we should take for us today and that we can learn from Noah. The first thing the Bible says is that he was a righteous man. He had a righteousness that was given to him by God. Notice that first Noah finds grace in God's eyes, and then he is a righteous person. There's an order there. It is the same order in our lives. We, because of Jesus Christ's grace in our lives, can find a new righteousness. Not built of ourselves like we just read, but it is given to us free by him, by our Lord. Righteousness means that I'm standing right with God. I've got a right relationship with God that results in the right actions towards other people. It also tells us that Noah was blameless among the people of his time. And that's a very interesting word because the nearest English word for the Hebrew word blameless is whole. Noah was a whole person. Noah was a complete person. Noah was a whole person in a broken world. And I don't know about you, but I like to be like Noah in that regard. Sometimes we may feel like we're the only whole person in a room, in a situation, whether it's your job or or your home. But sometimes God puts you in a place, in a situation, because he wants you to be that whole person in a broken world. And maybe that's what we need to think about this morning. The Bible tells us that Noah also walked with God. Again, it's interesting. Two people in the book of Genesis are said to have walked with God. One was Noah and the other was Enoch. And as I studied this, what I found really interesting and I really liked about these two men is their background. I mean, I don't like their background, but I I like the encouragement in their background. You see, Enoch was the seventh in line of one of Adam's descendants. And we all know that Adam had some problems in his life. He had some generational issues. The murders occur all the way through this line. 
And also Noah's father and grandfather were said to still be alive at the time that God said, every inclination of man's heart is to do evil except for Noah. What does that tell you about Noah's father and grandfather? It tells you that everyone, including his family, their inclination, their heart's inclination was to do evil all the time, which means that Noah was, had a family that, that was part of that other group. So here are two guys in the book of Genesis who are have to, who are said to have walked with God in an incredible way, and they both have terrible backgrounds. You see, sometimes God comes into our life, and because of our backgrounds, we tend to think that we cannot be righteous with God. We tend to think that we're never going to be good enough for our God. We tend to think that there is nothing that we can do because we are cursed from generations to generations. My parents were alcoholics. My great-grandparents you know, were abusive. Whatever it is, and we carry these burdens with us in our entire life thinking that there is no hope for us. Well, Noah and Enoch will tell you that that's not true. The slate is started clean in every one of our lives. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have some problems that we have to deal with, but it does mean that in our lives, God's grace is enough. And you guys should be really happy about that. And just as Noah grew up in a generation where everyone around him was bad, but God was able to do a great work in his life, the same thing can happen in your life. Amen? So the next time Satan throws something like that at you and tries to attack you because of your past or your background, remember that if he could do it for Noah and Enoch, he can do it for you. You have to take these stories home with you, place them into your heart, and use them to fight the battle that's raging on inside you. It's a story of sacrifice, but it's also a story of obedience. This story teaches us the motivational power of obedience. You see, everything about Noah building the ark was just pure obedience. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what he was about to do, but because God said to do it, he did it. Noah builds an ark because of God's command. The whole world is corrupt. God comes to Noah and says, build an ark. I want you to make it out of cypress wood. I want you to make rooms in it. I want you to coat it with a pitch inside and out. This is how big you're going to build the ark. And Noah, it says, was obedient in all aspects. Not only did he agree to build it, but he agreed to build it to God's specifications. Now imagine, I imagine that there had to have been some doubt in Noah's heart and mind throughout this whole time that he was building it. Yet no matter what doubt existed in his life, Genesis 6.22 tells us that Noah did everything just as God commanded. And again, that is a dream of my life. Noah did everything just as God commanded, and I'd like to get there someday. Complete obedience just as. That is exact obedience. What an amazing encouragement. What an amazing story of incredible obedience that we can take with us today. Noah was motivated because he was obedient. And I, that resonates with me because there are times in my life that the only thing that motivates me to serve God is my obedience to God. Sometimes we're not all going to feel like doing it. Sometimes people aren't telling you or patting you in the back telling you, hey, great job there. Sometimes they might even be telling you, hey, what a terrible job you're doing. The only thing that's going to allow you to move forward in your relationship with Christ is your obedience to God. I think there are days like that in all of our lives where Satan is just throwing a lot of temptations our way and we have to focus on our obedience to our Lord. 
There are days when the only motivation is obedience to the one who loves us the most. You see, I trust him more than I trust myself. Noah had that. That's why God was able to use him to change the world literally. This is also a story of trust and faithfulness. You see, after all this happened, Noah eventually entered the ark, and that shows you the motivational power of trust. He took his obedience and he applied it to trusting God as well. And it had to have been a scary moment. He's got all these animals in this ark, and he walks in, and the Bible tells us in chapter 7, verse 16, that the door was shut. The Bible says that it wasn't Noah who shut the door, but God himself. That, folks, is trust. When you allow God to shut the door in your life because you're trusting him, you see, sometimes God calls us to do something. We step inside, God shut the door, but we want to have another open as an option, just in case we need it. And we'll say, hey, God, I'll do this for you if you want me to have, if I can just have this option over here in case it doesn't work, God. But God is saying, I want you to shut the door, and it's shut. That is trust. The door was shut, and the Bible tells us that it was seven days after the door was shut before the rain started to fall. And that is in Genesis chapter 7, verse 10, where it says that after seven days, the waters of the flood came and covered the earth. I mean, how do you guys think that Noah felt during those seven days? It was probably the seven longest days of his life. Probably thinking, God, uh, you promised all this stuff. Where is that rain? By the way, what does rain look like? I don't even know what it looks like. How am I going to know that it's happening? I don't know why God waited seven days. And I don't know if he was giving people an opportunity to repent outside of the boat, or I don't know if he was doing something inside of Noah's heart during this time. I don't know why he did it. And I also don't know why God waits in my life sometimes, or your life. But he does, doesn't he? Some of you are in that seven-day waiting period right now, and you're wondering what in the world God is doing. When is he going to come through for you? You've gone in, the door is shut, you made the commitment, total commitment to God, and you're asking, God, I'm not really sure if this is going to work out. Noah had to feel that way, but he kept coming back to trust and obedience. Sometimes seven days can feel like seven years to us. Sometimes it can be the longest years of our lives or days of our lives. But trust says that God is working. The rain hasn't started yet. What he promised hasn't happened yet. But he's preparing it to happen just in his timing. Noah's trust was vital. And I'm here to tell you this morning that so is our trust. Our trust is vital in our God. And one of the most impressive things to me as I studied Noah was his faithfulness. When I think of a man who would go into the ark like that and trust God through all that time, I just think of how faithful Noah was to that mission, to that calling that God had placed in his life. And the reason I think that's impressive is because I know and I think you will agree that faithfulness isn't always fun. If you think about the fact that Noah had to care for and clean up after these animals over 300 days, then you know that faithfulness isn't always fun. Being in the midst of a storm is never fun. Has anybody ever enjoyed their storms? 
So on the days that aren't fun, when you're being faithful to God, we have to stand back and know that His promises will come true in His time. And if that doesn't help, we have to look back and see how God has been working in our lives in the past and remember that He has been faithful to you. And when He's asking you to be faithful to Him, remember Noah's story. This is also a story of worship. Now, all of this has happened. They're in the boat. They're about to find land. So what a great day it must have been. I mean, what would you have done? You've been on this ark for over a year with all these animals. You have to start thinking at this time. I mean, pretend you're in a cruise liner and it's all fancy and everything, but eventually you want to get off after being on it for over a year. What would be the first thing that you would do? You're stuck in this boat with all these animals, all these smells. What would you do? What would be the first thing you do when you get off this boat? How would you celebrate? Well, Noah teaches us the motivational power of worship because that is the first thing that he does when he gets off the ark. He's been on this ark for over a year with all of these animals. And the first thing he does, the Bible tells us, is that he sacrifices to God and he builds an altar. So we have to remember two things about Noah this morning. Number one is that he built an ark, but he also built an altar. And I wonder if Noah knew how long they would be in that ark. I wonder if he was able to store enough water. I, I, I know that it rained for over 40 days and 40 nights, but then it stopped. And then they were in the ark for another 11 months. And I'm going to take a while to guess and guess that there had to have been numerous miracles in order for Noah to feed his entire zoo for over a year. There's a beautiful promise found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And it says, and this same God, this is Paul speaking, who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. What I'm trying to tell you this morning from this scripture is that it is the same God that provided for Noah, whether it was miraculous or through his promise. It is the same God that provided for him is the same God that is going to provide all of your needs. This, this promise here tells us that. The promise of God's provision is still with us today. And I know that we don't get everything we want, but the question is, do we get everything that we need? And I have to tell you that if you're sitting in this room, then you have everything that you need. I mean, when was the last time that your first response, the first thing that you wanted to do was say thank you to God in any of your new situations? Because that's what Noah did. It's a great pattern. If I want to have a motivated life, what we have to do is take the first opportunity in any new situation, a new job, a new place we're moving, a new church uh, that we're involved in, a new baby like we talked about earlier, any new situation that comes into our life, the first thing that we should do is worship God. Thank Him for that situation. Because unfortunately, what most of us do in those types of, types of situations is that we tend to worry. But Noah allowed God to work in his life in this situation. He didn't come out of the boat and start thinking like, where are all the animals going to go? How am I going to take care of them? There's not enough vegetation yet for them to feed themselves. That's not what he did. The first thing it says is that he sacrificed, he worshiped, and he thanked his God. So what is your story? We're talking about the story of creation and Noah's story. And I talked about five different principles that we can apply into our life today so that it can help your story out. What part of Noah's story can you walk with and plant into your hearts and take out of these doors? Is it the story of justice? 
Perhaps someone's wronged you and you are seeking justice and now you are reminded that justice is God and God's alone and you need to leave it up to God and put it to prayer. Is it a story of grace? Maybe you've had a long day, a long week, a long month, and all you want God's grace to fall in your heart. Do you want to feel it? And you need to walk out of these doors having felt that grace that can only come from God. Is it a story of obedience? Maybe the story is challenging you to be more obedient to God, knowing that he has a perfect plan for your life, even if you don't believe it. Maybe your prayer this morning that you want to believe that God would help you with your unbelief. Is it a story of trust? Maybe some of you guys are in that seven-day waiting period and God has shut the door and in this story will help you understand it better. That if you put your trust in him, that his plan is going to come to fruition even in your life. Or is it a story of worship? Maybe this story will help you acknowledge God's provision in your life and we can all be thankful for it. This should be all of our stories that we can stand up before, especially in a place like this, and just thank our God for everything that we have and everything we don't have because it's all part of God's plan. No matter what it is, I would encourage you to respond to God according to what he's planted in your heart, however he leads you, however he tugs at you. But no matter what you do, just remember as you walk outside of these doors, remember that all it takes is one person to make an incredible difference. Will you pray with me? You always amaze us, Father, Because your word just brings encouragement into our life. Lord, we thank you for the story of Noah, that it would encourage us, that it would give us examples that we can take into our story, Father, that we can apply into our lives, Lord, that we can get in a closer relationship with you. And no matter what is going on in our lives, Father, understand that you will always come through for us. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for every single person in this room, no matter what their story is, no matter what their situation is, no matter what their past is, Father, we thank you that we can start clean with a new slate with you. Father, we thank you for that. And then we ask that you would be able to do a work in us and through us as we walk out of these doors, that we would be a different people as a result of having heard your word this morning. Lord, we know... We don't know what else to do but put ourselves in your hands, Father. Whenever we want to take that step into our will, Lord, I ask that you would somehow bring us back into your will, even if it hurts. Lord, thank you for allowing us to call you, Lord, and I ask that as we cry out to you and the many people that are here to worship you, Father, as they cry out to you, I ask that you would answer them in their time of need, that you would be their Lord and that they would... Just testify about that, Lord, not for our sake, not for our glory, that people would know, that people would understand that we serve you, and it is because of you that we're able to do these things. Father, we place ourselves in your hands. We love you this morning, and it is in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.